The last few weeks, we've been journeying through the gospel of Luke, looking at this idea that Jesus is coming near the arriving light, coming near to us. And really, last week, we got into this discussion of kind of what has come of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah was uh, confronted with the angel Gabriel. Gabriel told him that he and his wife would have a child. Gabriel said, what? No, he disbelieved. He had trouble with that. And so on the basis of his disbelief, his unbelief, and his struggle, God silenced him. He wasn't able to hear. He wasn't able to speak. And for nine and a half, ten months, whenever his wife became pregnant, for the duration of her pregnancy, he was unable to speak. And so last week, we looked at this, this kind of microcosm of redemption. And so if redemption is this overarching story of what God has done in the hearts of those he is calling to himself, redeeming them, calling them back from darkness and into light. And we saw this small picture of redemption within the life of Zechariah. So look back at verse 64. Remember, Zechariah has been silent for a considerable period of time. He has had these nine and a half, ten months to contemplate his failure, his inability to believe his failure to follow what he hears the angel of the Lord say. And so for this length of time, he has had the opportunity to reflect upon that failure. How will he come out of failure? How will he rebound in this? In verse 64, it says, And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. What we saw from the model of Zechariah was that even though he had failed, and you'll remember that he failed in the midst not of spiritual failure, but in spiritual revival. He was walking blamelessly in all the statutes and commandments of the Lord. Verse 6, he and his wife are considered righteous before the Lord. And so this isn't a couple who failed in the midst of, of being backslidden, but he failed in the middle of getting everything right. What hope do we have, right? And so, but in the midst of this, his recovery is in, incredibly instructive to us because his recovery isn't one of coming out of failure and saying, well, hey, let me just clear up kind of what's been going on the last few months. His recovery points first and foremost to the blessing of God. And what we see in verse 64 is that he opened his mouth and he blessed God. But what we see in verses 67 through 79 is that blessing spelled out. So the narrative really continues there in 65 and 66. And we find out what happened on the basis of what Zechariah had to say. But what we see... What we see in verses 67 through 79 is the entirety of that blessing recorded here for us by Luke as given to him by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so what I want us to do today is to read 67 through 79 because this is kind of the macro picture. This is the whole thing that he said, but we're going to focus on it in two parts because really it exists in two movements. Do you see that? Look at 67. 67 through 75 centers on the Davidic Messiah. It centers on Jesus. And then 76 through 79 centers on John the Baptist. And so this week, we're going to focus on what Zechariah has to say for us in 67 through 75. But next week, or actually week after next, we'll look at 76 through 79. Okay, so we're going to take this in two parts. Those of you who like to do homework, who like to read ahead, if you just reading this, just being here, don't fall asleep in the next 45 seconds and you'll be ahead for the next two weeks, okay? That's good. Look, I already lost somebody in the back. Don't, don't turn around. It's just going to embarrass them. Uh, verse 67, read with me. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people 
and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Look at verse 76. This is where he changes. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then verse 80 is a summary of those sayings. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, Uh, And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. It's this beautiful movement. And so on the one hand, Zechariah opens his mouth. He begins to bless God and move through. And then on the other, he gets into verse 76 and he turns and he sees his infant child. And he lays this blessing from the Lord upon this child. And so he's looking at the movement of God and then how his child will interact with the movement of God there in 76 through 79. Let's walk through this together. So uh, just kind of resetting this, this scene, he's there, they're about to circumcise the child, and they they're, have this bickering over what the name's going to be. Zechariah scrawls on the, on the wax and says his name will be John, and then his mouth is open, he blesses God. Now what we see in this blessing of God isn't that he has all of this pent up stuff to say, and now he's got the time to say it, and he's like, the mic is mine, the stage is mine. And he just starts talking. What we see in verse 67 is this is the movement of God in his life at this time. Do you see that? Look at this. 67. And his father, Zechariah, was what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Everybody say, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what he is. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies. And so at this moment, when Zechariah speaks, it is God speaking through him. It's God speaking through him. He's not making up his, his mind what to say. He's not laying in his two cents. He's being led along by the Holy Spirit. And this is being recorded as the word of God coming to bear on those present that day and you and I that day by virtue of the Holy Spirit leading, the, leading Luke to record it for us to read. And so he's prophesying. The first word of prophecy he comes out with is blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now contained within these few short verses, 67 through 79, are up to 33 different uh, quotations and allusions of the Old Testament. And so in our minds, as we're we're thinking about that, what does that mean? And what does that look like? Imagine that for nine and a half months or so, Zechariah has had little else to do other than pour over Scripture and, and likely occasionally consider where he went wrong how he failed and wondering what will be what's going to come and so when he's first given an opportunity to speak he pours out speech that is bathed in scripture effectively he opens his mouth and scripture pours out and so he says blessed be the lord god of israel where we find this in first kings 148 first kings 148 this 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 idea that god is to be blessed 
on the basis of his provision, on the basis of his promise coming to bear is recorded. And so the first thing that Zechariah wants them to know is God is to be blessed. Look at this. He doesn't point at it and say, look, something amazing has happened to me. I'm able to talk again. But he looks at his situation. He examines those things that have taken place and he directs them heavenward. He directs them heavenward. And so what we see is that on the basis of this tremendous thing that has happened in his life, isn't calling on those around him to say, look at me. Look at me. Look at the great things that have happened to me. Look at how great my life is. How are you? And he says, blessed. Instead, he says, how are you? And he says, God is to be blessed. He sees the movement of God in his life, and he directs all those around him to join with him in praising God. What a terrific testimony we see here from Zechariah. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? Look at verse 68. He goes on. For he has visited and redeemed his people. Now this idea of visitation is something that probably for most of us, hearing the idea of somebody visiting you after Thanksgiving is something that you're not all that jazzed up about. Maybe your mother-in-law came into town. Maybe your father-in-law, maybe you went to your mother-in-law's house and she said, oh my gosh, they're visiting me again. They're bringing those kids, they're wrecking my house, I just can't stand them. So the idea of visiting is something that, that most of us, we're intimately familiar with. I mean, like, this is the season for visiting, and then after this is the, is the season when New Year's resolutions roll around to not visiting, right? And so most of us, we survive Thanksgiving, we survive Christmas, we've done lots of visiting, and you make it to the end of this and you say, look, I don't want to visit anybody again for a very, very long time. This is just kind of how it is. You get all these people who grew up together back into the situation. The power structure is all kinds of messed up. What, you're looking at me like this is only my family. Come on. I see you guys in the hallway. You're like, I ain't going there again. Have you told your wife you're not going? No, I'm not going to tell her that. We'll talk about it next year. Oh, brother, you're going back. You're going back. You know how it is. You get everybody in the family together. The power structure is all kinds of messed up. You have this incredibly strong matriarch or patriarch of the family, and they are ruling the roost. Your spouse, who you've been married to for 20, 30 years, is suddenly six years old again, and their parents are in charge. Look, that's your family's issue. You've got to work that out. But when we see this, and he gets into this idea of visiting, he's not conjuring this idea of just just kind of nonchalantly gathering together. It's not this idea of gathering family together. When he writes here, this idea of visitation, he's calling upon something that is explicitly labeled and restricted to the visitation of God. This idea that he wants us to see here is something that is, is intrinsic to God's visitation, not just what happens when we get together with our family. Look here, flip over to Psalm 106, verse 4. Psalm 106, verse 4 says, Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. And then translating the the Hebrew word visit there in a slightly different way, it says, Help me when you save them. Help me when you save them. So this idea of visitation here, shown us by Zechariah, is not primarily situated, discussed with the idea of, of visiting, of catching up. Oh, how's your mom? How's the family? How's work going? That's not the idea that he's talking about. It's not that God has come and visited his people and said, hey, let me catch up. I haven't seen you in a while. But it's the idea. It's conveyed. It's encapsulated in the idea of bringing his help 
near to his people. And we see it again, Luke uses it in Acts 15. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are in and they're talking to the Jerusalem council. In verse 12, it says, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. They're talking about how God is bringing salvation to the Gentiles. Thus far, people had assumed that it would only be a movement among the Jews, but Paul and Barnabas are talking about all the things God had done among the Gentiles. Verse 13, And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first, listen to this word, visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. When God visits a people, it's not this idea of, hey, let's, let's catch up, let's visit, where have you been? God is not surprised when you show up on a Sunday and he has not seen you since the following Sunday, but he's not looking at this time as an opportunity to visit with you in the sense of catching up with you, God's holy visitation coming to a people is a profound movement of God upon their life. And what he's talking about in this is God's visiting is tied to God's redemption. God's visiting is tied to God's redemption. When God visits a people, he brings himself to bear upon them. When God visits a people, he comes near to them and reveals to them who he is and calls them out of the mess of their lives. This is what it is for God to visit. Now look at this. He says God has visited and redeemed his people. Well, this creates an interesting question for us. He's writing of these in both in the past tense. Now this is curious. It's curious because on the basis of, of, of what is he suggesting this? He's basing it on the, on the, the suggestion, he's basing it actually on the surety that God's promises will come to bear. Thus far, all we know is that his child, John the Baptist, will prepare the way of the Messiah, and Mary's child will, in fact, be that Messiah. Two things that have not happened. And so John the Baptist, eight-day-old, isn't, isn't directing people and casting out and talking about how the sin is, needs to be repented for. He's not baptizing people as an eight-year-old. He's talented, I'm sure, but nobody's that talented. Right? And so what he's talking about it, though, as, is, as if it is a past tense. God is able to direct these things. He's able to speak through Zechariah and describe these things as being in the past tense based upon the surety of his promise coming to bear. So when God says to Mary, you will get pregnant and you will bear a child and you'll call his name Jesus, and through him many people will come to be saved, it is a surety, not a possibility. And that's something we really need to make sure we're aware of. It's a surety, not a possibility. The word of God is a surety. It's something that when we read, we can take it to the bank. It's something that when we read, we don't have to say, well, I wonder how this is going to work out. When we read it, we know that it will come to pass on the basis of the one who gave the testimony to begin with. So Zechariah says, blessed be the Lord God. But why? Because he has granted the surety of his visitation and his redemption. You see that. Look what he says next. Verse 69, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Again, looking at these Old Testament allusions. Psalm 148 and verse 14 says, He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. 
You know, this idea of, of raising up a horn. When the Old Testament writers would, would describe certain animals, they talk about the ox that had these, these horns that would come around, and that, orn, that horn rather was a sign of its power and of its ability. That horn was a sign of its power and of, uh, of its ability. And so frequently you'll see this description of raising up a horn. And what it's a description of is a pointing to something's power and its ability. And so what he writes here, what he writes here is God is moving through this. And he has raised up a horn of what? Of salvation for us. So pointing, describing this Messiah that will come to be, he says of him, not that he'll be this, this phenomenal military leader. In fact, he is crafting and seeking to move people away from this conception in the first century of what they presumed the Messiah would be like. People presumed that the Messiah would come in, that he would drive Rome out, that he would set up his rule and his reign, and things would be great in Jerusalem. Once again, they would return to this heyday of the Davidic kingdom, that they would usher back in the Solomonic-type reign. But instead, what does he point to? He points to salvation. And how does he point to? He says, God has raised up for us a horn of salvation. Jesus Christ is the horn of salvation lifted up for all to see. Jesus Christ is the horn of salvation. Look what he says. He says that it is in the house of his servant David. Now David... David entered into this discussion with God in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 26, and he is asking God to preserve his line. And he's tying it to the basis of God's character and, and who God has, has said that he is and on the basis of his earlier promise given to David. And so in that, we see, we see that God's promise is tied to his character, God's promise is tied to his word, and what he has said will come to pass. Again, reckon, notice here, what does he say? He says, and he has raised up. Again, pointing to the fact that it is a past tense. Now, has Jesus been born yet? No. The salvation of humanity rests on a child in utero. It, it's, it's, it's not certainly unusual to think about, but the salvation of humanity rests on someone that has not yet been born. Just as when, when Zechariah is talking about in 76 through 79, what his son will go do, he is uttering prophecy, but it will come to be. Now we find ourselves here a couple thousand years removed, and so we look and we see these things and say, certainly we know these things to be true. Certainly we know that those things that he said would come to bear. But imagine you're hearing this for the first time. Imagine you're gathered around and this man who you've not heard speak for nine and a half, ten, ten months, open his mouth. And the first things that you hear him say, he begins to discuss and talk about those things that have not happened yet, things that you have not seen, realities that you have not observed, and he speaks of them in terms of things that have already happened. And your mind begins to spin. And your thoughts begin to go. And likely they didn't catch on for many years, but if we are paying careful attention to this, it points to something about God. It's not a misspeech. It's not artistic license. What Zechariah is pointing out is the surety of God to bring to bear his promise. 
So when he speaks to these people, he is not encouraging them. He's not arguing with them, trying to bring them around to his perspective. Instead, he's communicating with them the divine word of God and speaking to them on the surety of God's ability to bring to bear, raising up this Messiah figure who would be Jesus Christ. Look what he goes on to say, verse 70. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us, verse 69, verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies. On the basis of this, we recognize and we look at this, that what Zechariah is pointing to is God's promises, who they have long began to, well, maybe we should reinterpret this a different way. We haven't seen God move in this way. Maybe something else is going to come to be. So he's pulling them back into this understanding of those things God said he will bring to be. Verse 70, he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. 400 years the people of Israel waited. The book of Malachi comes to an end for 400 years. They had not seen the movement of the Lord. And so it makes sense that in the midst of this, when Zechariah begins to prophesy, he reminds them that the God who spoke over 400 years ago is still speaking today. Those promises that he left to his people so many years ago still have weight, they still have validity, they still have the ability to come true for us today. So he's calling on them to believe those things that they heard, not to doubt the promises of God. As he spoke by the mouth of his prophets from of old. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now this gets into something interesting. Zechariah mentions this and and their minds likely would have gone to the Roman Empire. I mean, they had no shortage of enemies. They had no shortage of people who looked down upon them on the basis of who they are, on the basis of their religious order and practices. They were monotheistic, and the Romans looked at that and considered them to be atheists because they did not have this, this polytheistic, this, this multiplicity of gods to worship, this pantheon of gods to bow down before. And so they look at this, and, and their mind begins to think about who all their enemies are. And it just spins all these things. But what does the promise through the, from the Lord, through Zechariah, say to them in the midst of this? In regard to their enemies. That we should be saved from our enemies. But how does that work? It's on the basis of this horn of salvation being lifted up. It is on the basis of this child in utero come in the flesh, delivered over to the hands of humanity, crucified on a cross that they might be saved, that they might be saved from their enemies, from all those who hate us. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. Now here he is quoting from Micah 7.20. Micah 7.20, and again, kind of on this vein of, of wanting them to remember that God is not unable to fulfill his obligations he's not unable to bring to bear those things that he's promised but for 400 years they haven't seen it come to be for 400 years they've waited for 400 years they've wondered been here quoting Micah 7:20. he said you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old just as in the minor prophets 
these 12 minor prophets that, that round out our Old Testament, they begin to wait, when will God move? How will God move? How do we see him moving? They begin to ask these questions that some of us ask today. God, how long will you wait? We see bombings and shootings in Paris. We see Boko Haram. We see all of these things moving. We see strife in the Middle East. We see strife in our own country. And we ask the question, God, how long will you wait? We think of the people who are enemies to us. Some of us, we think of our neighbors. Some of us, we think of our estranged spouse. Some of us, we think of people we just don't care for. Some of us, we think of politicians. And we ask the question again, God, how long will you wait? It's not so dissimilar to the situation that Zechariah finds himself in. Bringing a message of hope, a promise of hope to a people who are asking this question, God, how long will you wait? And repeatedly, over and over again, he calls on them to remember the promises of God. God is not slow to deliver on his promises. But we must remember that we are also not the taskmasters with our watch open saying, huh, God, you're late. You're like five minutes late. I want to dock your pay. God, you're not moving in the time and the system that I thought you would. And so I'm just going to, like, I, I, I'm done with you. I'm frustrated with you. Why aren't you moving in the ways that, that I want you to? Because, God, don't you know that I am all right? We were going to say all knowing, but we know that's not true. God, I'm, I'm right. I'm, I, this, this thing makes sense to me. God, why do you move in this way and not in that way? Zechariah comes to a people with the same struggles. With the same questions. And he calls on them to follow in the same thing, to remember the same thing that would be a sure promise for us to rest in. God will fulfill his promises. God will fulfill his promises. He will show mercy to his people. Verse 73 says that God, the, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, he will grant to us. And what he's referencing here is found back in Genesis 22. Flip over to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Genesis is the first book of your Bible. It's a story of beginnings. And you'll remember that in Genesis 12, God came and he spoke to a man named Abram. And he told him that he would give to him a descendant. And then in verse 3, he said, through your descendant, effectively, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Zechariah and Abram, their situations are not all that dissimilar. Both older, both who had wives that were barren. And so God moved and he brought a child into this relationship of Abraham and Sarah. And the child's name was Isaac. And in Genesis 22, God moves and he leads Abraham to, he's instructed to offer Isaac as a sacrifice before the Lord. It's a horrible thing he's asked. It's a terrible thing he's asked. And he's up there and he is going through and he has done everything God has called him to do, directed him to do. And he's prepared to follow through trusting in the promise of God. And the Lord stops him. And what we read in verse 16 says, And I have said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. 
And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have what? Obeyed my voice. The obedience. The obedience displayed by Abraham in believing the promise of God led out to the blessings of humanity. The obedience followed through by Abraham led to the blessing of humanity. But the blessing of humanity isn't just brought in the multiplying the physical descendants of Abram. So it's not just these these physical descendants, the people that are actually physically in that line, in that family of Abraham. We find out that, as Paul writes, that in Abram we find ourselves to be spiritual brothers. We find ourselves to be united into that line if... God has visited you, if God has redeemed you, if you have believed in the name of his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, we see that God's blessing through Abram, hundreds of years later, becomes true for men and women in our day. Through what? Through the horn of salvation that he lifted up in Jesus. Now look here in verses 74 and 75 as we prepare to close out. He says that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Now Zechariah is writing to a group of people and he's telling them that God is going to move, that they're going to be delivered from the hand of their enemies, that they might what? They might serve God without fear. When we begin to look at the life of the, the unregenerate, when we begin to look at the life of the person who does not know God, we begin to look at our own stories. Justin's story, Shannon's story, Valerie's story, Jake and Sarah's story. When we begin to look at our collective stories, we recognize that we were not warring against an enemy of flesh and blood. Before you came to know the Lord, you, you were not warring against this enemy that, 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 that was your neighbor, that was your competitor, that was some terrorist trying to kill you. You were not warring against them. Your primary enemy was one of a spiritual life. But we were blind to that. We saw all the, the strains and pressures of our life, our, our job, our, our relationship. We wanted to keep looking perfect on Facebook. We saw all these things that we wanted to be idyllic. And we assumed that these were our enemies. It's the stressors and the pressures of life. We recognize that God has delivered us from the hand of our enemy. But as we read in Titus 3, it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days away in malice and envy. Listen to this. Hated by others and hating one another. Hated by others and hating one another. This is a picture of us surrounded by our enemies. We were greedy, we were lustful, we were full of hate, we were full of pride. We, we, we assumed that, that we were the very center of everything and everyone that disappointed us was to be shunned. 
to be punished until they were brought into accordance with the way we presumed life and reality should be. Just as we are surrounded by the enemies of our own sins, so too we are surrounded by the enemies of spiritual beings who are seeking to keep us from coming to God, to keep us living in darkness. We were our own enemy. We were our own enemy. But we see that that he has come to deliver us from our enemies, as we read there in Luke. Verse 4 in Titus 3 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, when, when, when God appeared through the person of Jesus Christ, this horn of salvation that is lifted up, this light that pierced in the middle of your darkness, this light which, which sought, which beckoned you to come from darkness to light, hey, this light, this is what he's calling you to see. There are so many distractions in life. Don't miss this. Don't miss the fact that God intervened into the middle of your mess. God intervened into the middle of your life, in your pit of despair, and he called you from your own personal enemies. How? By personally appearing through the scriptures to you. God has called you. He has sought you. He has desired to redeem you. And to redeem you. And this is why, that as Zechariah said, he has visited and redeemed. The same thing can be true for you. That God has visited and redeemed you in the person of Jesus. He has made you to be his. Verse 5 in Titus 3 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ our Savior. God has saved you. If you have not come to know Jesus, recognize this, that all those enemies you're seeking to put down, all those inadequacies you're seeking to overcome, you've got family strife, you've got financial strife, you're disappointed in yourself that you haven't made more of yourself in life, made more of your lot in life. You're disappointed that your, your spouse isn't pretty enough. And you're, you're disappointed that when you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror, you're not pretty enough. Like life is just a disappointment to you. You wish it could be better. You wish it could be different. It is not your ability to make it different, to make it better that brings God to save you in your life. It's just not. Wake up to the reality. Wake up to the reality that we were all once foolish, disobedient, and led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Wake up to this reality that you can't get it right. God's not calling you to. God's not calling you to get it better. Now this is the difference in most of our relationships in life. Most people will not spend any time with you if you annoy them. This is true. Like if you don't realize this and you always ask the question, why don't I have any friends? It's because you're annoying. (laughs) Self-discovery is valuable. If you wonder if you're annoying, uh, don't ask me. If you have to ask the question, you probably are. God is not seeking for you to discover the answer to the question, am I annoying? 
am I lovable? He makes you lovable. He redeems you. Calls you to himself. He is laying waste all of your enemies, sin and death, and he beckons you, come and to receive the forgiveness that only he is able to bring you. This is the glorious news. This is the most amazing thing that could ever happen to any of us at any time. That Jesus Christ would come in, that he would change our hearts, that he would come close to us, that we would be forgiven, and that we would enter into his rest. That's the news that we have for those who have yet to come to Jesus. But we recognize that some of us, after we come to faith, then we feel like we should be getting this right. We become supremely frustrated with ourselves. We sin, we struggle, we look back and we recognize that we were once foolish and disobedient and we say, look, this thing, these things shouldn't have any bearing on me anymore. And that's true. You have died to sin and you live to Christ. But the flesh, the world around you, it calls upon you to revisit your former way of life. So it finds you. It finds you in the midst of struggles. It finds you in the midst of disappointments. It finds you in seasonal depression. It finds you in the midst of these things and it beats the mess out. You love your wife, you don't want to talk to her that way, but you find yourself doing it. You love your wife, you don't want to cheat on her, but you find yourself looking at pornography. You love your wife, you love your children, you don't want to act this way, you don't want to pour out in anger, but repeatedly you find yourself doing it. You're broken. So everything around you calls you to look at it and say, well, I just need to do better. I just need to be more patient. I just need to be more loving. I just need to put all these structures and systems in my life to cover all of the mess to keep it from spilling on everybody I know. Then, then God will love me. Then my relationship to him will be restored. Then I'll be able to have an unhindered prayer life. Then finally my relationship with God will move to the next level and I won't struggle with these same things. What you're thinking about, what you're looking for is a reality that does not exist. He saved you. You did not save yourself. Allow him to save you still. I meet with people every week. I see people write all over Facebook, Twitter, create blogs. I mean, just all over the place, people that struggle with their identity in Christ. The surety that Zechariah offers when he talks about he has visited, he has redeemed, these are sure things that had not even yet taken place. Christian, quit seeking to, to, to make your life better. The same trust and faith you exercised and receiving forgiveness is the same he offers you today. It is the same that allows you to stand on his promises, not your ability to make him smile. God is not your mom. God is not your dad. You don't have to live up to a certain example to make him pleased with you. Look what the author of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 4. 
He said in verse 14, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. On the basis of Jesus' work, let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as are we. Yet without sin, the difference between you and Jesus is you are not that he wasn't tempted and you are, is that you were both tempted, you failed, he did not. And it's because of your failure that you need him. And it's because of his perfection that he's able to provide for the need that you have. Look what he goes on to say. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The way to have a closer walk with Jesus isn't to set things right in your life. The way to have a closer walk with Jesus is to boldly approach the throne of grace so that in that moment that we would find mercy and grace in the time of need. Those enemies that were real in our life before we came to Christ, and some of us are still battling with these same things, may be overcome, not in creating systems and orders in our life, but clinging more desperately to the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? The enemies that he has in your life aren't overcome by setting up things and by you doing it right. The enemies in your life may be overcome by leaning hard into Jesus. This passage tells us that we may boldly approach. We don't approach sheepishly. We don't approach apologetically. We approach boldly, not on the basis of our ability to be better, but on the basis of Jesus' perfection and our receiving of righteousness in him. Amen? Would you pray with me?